What's up, everybody, and welcome to another Boardroom Out of Office podcast. This is number 33, which is only fitting because my man Patrick Ewing is in the NCAA tournament winning the Big East. Yo, 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 New York Knicks, man. Get my man Patrick Ewing right. He should be led into any basketball arena in the country, all right? I'm not having it. Straight up. Every basketball arena in the country. You're right, G. I appreciate that. This shout-out right there because Pat did get a... get into some shit the other night. But he went on and won the Big East tournament. Incredible moment. Um, obviously, the late John Thompson, uh, his coach at Georgetown, recently passed away. And this was a special moment for fans of Coach Thompson, Patrick, Georgetown, around the country. And today we got another special person on, somebody I've gotten to know recently, um, somebody I think you know a little bit as well. Yeah. Uh, running for mayor it's going to be it's a special time i appreciate him making time to talk to us he he's had an incredible career man he's really he's kind of checked every box along the way from an education standpoint he sits on the boards of some of the most incredible institutions and uh, he went on to run corporate and investment banking at Citigroup, and now as i mentioned running for mayor without further ado please welcome democratic mayoral candidate and pioneer ray mcguire Thank you for having me, Rich, uh, Gianni. You guys are, you guys are at the top of the chart. So I'm glad to be with you. I'm honored to be with you. Today is cold outside, but the sun is shining. I'm hanging out with the rock stars. It is all good. <laughs> it's definitely a pleasure. Sun is shining. That's right. Well, um, I appreciate you coming on our show. I, you know, I said pioneer because um, we've had an incredible guests on our show and. Everybody has had their own kind of route and journey, and everyone, for the most part, a lot of the guests we've spoke to had obstacles along the way. And um, I know from speaking to you a little bit and hearing your story that that's um, the same holds true for you. I mean, you grew up in Dayton, Ohio, and it said I, I read that you were raised predominantly by your mom and grandma. But tell me a little bit about your childhood, um, if you could. Yeah, I was, as they say in Ohio, O-H, and then somebody yells out I-O for all those people who understand what's going on, what's up there. Listen, I did grow up in Dayton, Ohio. I was raised by my single mother who raised, along with my grandparents, me and my two brothers, along with half a dozen foster children at any one point in time. And my mother was a social worker. I didn't know my dad. My mother's a social worker. And they, uh, they raised us. I grew up across the street from... Uh, a place called the Howard Paper Mill. You know, Dayton was right in the center of the industrial part of the country. And there was a Howard Paper Mill that was right across the street, which is now a toxic waste site. And sometimes that paper mill used to emit fumes so strong that the only way we could breathe is open the refrigerator door. And so I remember that. I remember the sacrifices that my mother, who was a social worker, made in order for us to have the things in life that are important. We had all the things that money could not buy. You know, love and faith and trust in our own family. And then the things that, that, you know, we didn't have a lot of money, but we had the basics. And she sacrificed for me. And I can remember sacrificing in education, which is the only way I got here. I want to be clear. Education is the only way I got here. And, you know, in the fifth grade, there was a teacher who called my mother, Ellen Moore. I remember her so, so well. She called my mother and says, you know, Ray's got some talent and they built a school in the south of town. And you, we th I think you ought to kind of apply there. So I applied. We got in. I had no money. So, you know, it was all on scholarship. And I had to walk, I don't know, three quarters of a mile to a mile to get to a street corner where the bus would pick me up as it came from north of town going to south of town. And north of town was where all the, the Jewish community lived. And south of town was where the Protestant community lived and they all got together to build this school. So I went to this school from sixth grade to 11th grade. In 11th grade, I had an A average. I averaged 28 points per game playing basketball and I was president of the school. And there was another teacher who said, if you're as good as they say you are, her name was Robin Melnick. If you're as good as they say you are, why don't you go test yourself against the big boys and girls in the East? I said, okay, where are they? So I took a Greyhound bus by myself around New England and I, uh, you know, I found this school called the Hotchkiss School in Lakeville, Connecticut, and decided to go there. And when I got there, I saw these kids who had those short sleeve shirts with alligators on them, cost more than my entire wardrobe. And so that was, you know, the beginning of my competing with the big boys and girls on the East Coast. 
So, you know, it's funny when I, when I talk to like KD, for instance, when he committed to basketball at eight years old, he thought to himself consciously said to his mother, to his brother, like, this is going to be what I do to get us out of here. I'm, I'm going to get us out of here. Uh, was education what you kind of looked at your mom and grandma and said, like, when they said to them, Ray's got something special and different. Was there something you wanted to be at that point that you aspired to? Or was it like, let me lock in on my education? You know, I didn't know anything about aspiring to anything because folks just had jobs. You know, my mother's a social worker and my grandfather as a as a janitor and then the head deacon and state Sunday school superintendent and my grandmother as the district missionary head. You know, this is it was for us. Uh, it was a job for me and it was education, which is at the foundation of this. So I didn't have that same self-awareness. I didn't say that I'm going to go into education at eight years old. I was just, you know, it was education, which was the only way out. I did want to be one or two characters, though. I wanted to be either uh, Perry Mason or Ben Casey. Now, Gianni doesn't know who either of those two people are. They are big television characters. Perry Mason was a great lawyer, and Ben Casey was a great doctor. And yeah, I had athletes as as great stars, but I never thought that. And you know, I come along years later than KD, but I never thought of myself as you know going to go do that. I had a nice game. But I never thought that I was going to go to the league. Yeah. No, but you you knew that you had something, right? Like yeah. You, you yeah. Knew, you knew you had something. And, you know, I don't think that always for a lot of kids at any time, but especially from what you grew up in the, in the circumstances you grew up under, they just know they want to be something. I even heard Rich Paul once quoted as saying he just knew he wanted to be somebody and he didn't really know what that was going to manifest into. Um, when you went to Harvard at that point, where uh, the level of, I'm sure, intensity and education and competing with the big boys, right, for, for that matter. And yeah. What, what was that experience like when you, when you got there from where you were growing up? You know, it was, that, was a, that too was a different world. Uh, it was an extension of what I'd gotten at, at the Hotchkiss School. So it expanded that. And one of the things that you quickly figure out at Harvard is that you have everything available to you, the best in the world, but you have to be aggressive and go get it. Best teachers, best curriculum, best facilities, but you got you to gotta have enough drive to go get it. And I began to learn that there early. And I also learned that it was a big world there. And so what I decided to do, I played basketball for the first year or so and, uh, and decided that I would kind of hang my shoes up officially because there was so much more I wanted to experience at Harvard. And had I just committed to basketball, I would have not been able to experience all the rest of the university that I was able to experience and develop those relationships. And I'm, you know, I'm so grateful that I did that there. You got to clearly focus on the studies, but you got to focus on a whole bunch of other things too. Yeah. You know, we, we talk a lot about network, especially on these, like uh, this new generation when we, when we do our boardroom program at colleges so many people now aspiring to be entrepreneurs, right? Or they just say they want to be an entrepreneur, whether they're wired that way or not. Um, and when and when they do that, they go into this world and they're like, well, how, you know, how do I even start? And one thing, at least that I kind of hung my hat on was a network where everywhere I went, every stop I made was meeting people along the way. I'm sure Harvard was a breeding ground for networks of people. Is that kind of where you started to build your core of people you know, as you went into the world of finance from there that you started to build with, was the Harvard community really that resourceful from that perspective? It, you know, the, the answer is yes. But one thing that you never forget, the more you began to move up, the fewer the actual friends you have. So the people on whom I rely are the people I've known for a long time. So the network's important, but you always, always got to make sure you got a foundation because as you develop that network, you know, networks are critical. And Harvard was, you know, it, it is a wealth of networks, wealth and not in terms of economic wealth, but just in terms of how vast the network is. And one of the things that I decided to do was to access the different communities at Harvard, all black community, the all white community, the social community, the athletic community, the political community, the literary community. 
So I was involved in a lot of different communities. I still played ball. Um, you know, it was a group of guys yeah. who either couldn't make or didn't play ball, but it, it, I still did that. But you got to be part of a lot of communities. And you're absolutely right, Rich. As the world evolves, we see how important those networks are because if you can access the network, you get open up to that many more opportunities. Was your work ethic one of those like insane through the night type people? Or did you just have this incredible balance in college? You said you hoop still. I assumed you built your network and went out and explored Cambridge. But to achieve like the multiple degrees and to go from where you came from, was it just this insane drive early on? Yeah, Rich, you can't, you know, I, I, you can't let up, right? I didn't, Rich, I didn't have a plan B. There was no plan B. I had to get this done. I had a one-way ticket, right? Yep. Going back home would have done what? So, and I, you know, I frequently thought about this. When you get to, when you get to be your most tired moments, you got to, that's all very interesting, but it's not particularly relevant. You got to pick up <laughs> and you got to have that drive. Yep. So what's the landscape like? when you're, I assume you're working at the same time you're getting your degrees, right? What's the landscape of Wall Street when you're starting to enter that world? It's a whole different landscape, man. It was a frontier. It was a frontier. There was, you know, in the world in which I started, in the world of corporate finance and especially mergers and acquisitions, you know, this is, this is, this is kind of high science, high finance science. And, you know, if I'd had lunch if I had to convene a lunch with, you know, more than one or two people on in that business, there'd only been, that'd have been a pretty, pretty short lunch. There was nobody around in corporate finance. So when I started, man, in the world of corporate finance, mergers and acquisitions, I got recruited by two people, one Bruce Wasserstein and the other Joe Perella. And they trained me for the first 10 years of my career. And this is, this is high stakes because you're advising CEOs and chairmen and senior managements and boards on how they grow their businesses and how they compete strategically in what is a fast changing world. There's nobody to look like me doing that. That was the, that was it. You, you got your games got to be tight. You got to be better than being equal to doesn't work. You got to be better than demonstrably better than in order to survive. This is not a popularity contest. You got to have total game. You can't go to the court with Stan Smith sneakers on. You got to go ready to play every day. No margin for error. Facts. And I, w I was going to ask you because the way I think of Wall Street in the early 80s, late mid 80s, late 80s, I consider I think of Oliver Stone's Wall Street. I think of Gordon Gekko. I think of Charlie Sheen. And at that time, I know it feels like rich people got really rich in the 80s that Wall Street boom really started to take off. So I was wondering if you could walk me specifically through your journey from when you first joined and throughout the late 90s. So when I first joined, I joined in what was then the first Boston Corporation, which is now Credit Suisse, First Boston, in September of 1984, which really began the modern day era of mergers and acquisitions. And I was there at First Boston with Joe and Bruce, who were the kind of the real architects of mergers and acquisitions and tactics. And in the 80s, this is where most of the rules of engagement were set. How you could go do hostile transactions, how you could become an investor. And at that point, we we call them green mailers. They would, you know, they'd go in, they'd make an investment and then they would demand to be bought out at a certain price in order for them to, in order for the company to get rid of them, they'd had to go in and, you know, negotiate with them to get them out. And it evolved over time. But in the eighties, that was a wild west. All the laws were set, all the tactics were tested. Uh, you'd have the great Joe Flom and the great Marty Lipton all going at each other. And there were others but Delaware was the court of, that was a central court that where you litigated everything. And that was a frontier that lasted from 1982, 83, up until the Japanese decided not to fund United Airlines go private transaction in 88, 89. And then the market went down and that market lasted down. Uh, the cycle ended and it didn't pick up again until 1993, 94. And there it went up until we got to something called long-term credit bank. 
And there the market kind of dropped. And then what took over right before that was technology. And there you saw the largest transaction, probably in the history of transactions, which was Time Warner joining with AOL. And then that bubble dropped in June of 2000. And it, that went down from, you know, that went down a while. So I was involved in many of those, many of that. I was on the street when that happened. So I learned at the early stages of the business. When you, you said when you first sat down and you were doing corporate restructuring and M&A and nobody else looked like you, did you feel that? Like, was that, I, I, I know, but I, talk to me a bit about that obstacle then and how you felt that when you entered. You know, there's always, you, you feel it when you're, you know, when you're competing in these environments, either competing academically or competing in the world of finance, you know it's there. It's a factor, uh, but you can't let the factor, it, it can't impede your progress. You have to accept it as a factor and you got to move forward. As the great Ralph Ellison said long ago, play the game, but don't believe in it. And you have to become expert at it in order to survive. And certainly in order to move up, you got to become expert on it, which means that, you know, you, know you, you have to be as good as you can be technically. And then you have to add to that. And when you have shortcomings, you got to improve on them. But you, this is, you got to do this on the, you don't, you don't get a chance to get in the gym. You got to go hard every day. And the game's played every single day. And the margin for error really doesn't exist. Yep. You know, very few people can drop uh, someone else's quote mid-sentence and make it seem so smooth, but you do that perfectly, man. <laughs> Gee, we got to start quoting people and see if we can pull that off, man. This question is kind of random, but I know people that are listening to this, younger people. We have, a, we have a, like this audience of Guys that are leaving school, leaving sports business programs, women that are leaving management and sports business programs that are going to the world of Wall Street. And I feel like there's this like new popularity, right? This new kind of uh, cultural re relevancy around Wall Street and finance because of this quick dollar, the more of the Robin Hood generation. But when you were coming up, was it just like a grind before you actually made money? Because when I was younger, right, and I'm kind of in between the two of your generations, I had friends of mine where we kind of, you know, you're coming out of college, you see everybody who's pace setting and the finance guys were grinding for a while and didn't really start making money um, until like their, let's say, late 20s. Is that mm -hmm. always been the trajectory on Wall Street? Yes. This this myth of what you're seeing now with this Robin Hood stuff, that ain't real. I mean, maybe real today, but this is a grind. This is not some, listen, I grinded, I don't know how long. And you can't give up on the grind. It is a constant grind if you're going to get, if you're going to move up. Now, the grind gets too hard for too many people, for a lot of people, not to me. Grind gets hard for a lot of people. They decide, listen, I don't want to do this. I do not want to work six days a week, six days a week. So in order to succeed in this business, but the, the challenge is, I want to be clear about this. The challenge is in every profession, in order to succeed and excel, you have to put in the work. It's a grind. It is a grind, and all the greats have gone through this. As you know, as has been said, when championships are won, when nobody's looking, you yep. are in the gym. K didn't get to be KD because he was, you know, showed up every game. My man put in the work. He puts yep. in the work every day. Yep. That's the only way we're going to get there. These, the, I mean, the people need to understand. You can't just get your computer and start trading stocks and figure out you're going to make a whole bunch of money. It don't work that way. Mm-hmm. And, and to that, you know, you got to this insane title at, at Citigroup. But, you know, when you hear restaurateurs, for instance, talk about if you want to own a restaurant one day, you should do every job in the back mm -hmm. of the house. You should do every job in the front of the house and learn the whole thing. Do you feel the same way? Like, was it important for you to see every side of the business and to see every side of Wall Street in order to do what you ultimately did? The answer to that is Absolutely. Why is that, Rich? Because when you get inside of a boardroom, you get inside the boardroom because you have demonstrated experience that people can go verify, and you have judgment based on that experience. What all of the people are paying you for is your judgment. Is can you make the right call when there's, you know, 
one or two or three seconds left on the clock, to whom will the ball go? And who's got the highest percentage of doing what needs to be done at that time? And that's a judgment call that comes over time. This is not something you just wake up and dream about. I mean, you dream about and wake up and say, this is what's going to happen. This is all, this is, this is, you got to have a plan. You got to have a plan. You got to have a plan. You got to execute on that plan. So it comes down to, it comes to putting in the work. I keep coming back to that. You can't get there without putting in the work. Yep. You know, it's funny, man. Everyone, uh, we did a, um, uh, one of these programs I mentioned earlier with Mark Lazary at Wisconsin. And someone asked him like, what's the secret to, he basically asked like, what's the secret to some boom, some trajectory. And the, and he looked at him, he's like, work, hard work. It's like, that's it. And Mark has done extraordinarily well. Right. But he put in the work. Yeah. There's no, you know, the, the, the harder I work, the luckier I get. It works that way. Right. Mm-hmm. I'm going to quote that. That's going to be my quote. I'm going to say the great Ray McGuire says, the harder you work, the luckier you get. Um, so keeping with our basketball analogies, does a $19.8 billion sale of Nabisco to Philip Morris feel like winning game seven of a championship? That begins a conversation. That begins a conversation. <laughs> 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 you, oh, you, you dropped that one early. I, I can give you one that will, will, will be like winning the game. You want me to give you that one? Yeah, what's that one? You ever heard of a company called Time Warner? Ooh, talk to me about that one. Yeah, Time Warner, the last transaction on which we advised Time Warner was its $108 billion deal to merge with AT&T. Oh, so that 19.8 was like winning like game one of the first round. That's what I'm saying. <laughs> if you're going to talk about this stuff the right way, you got to put it in context. That's the fifth largest deal in the history of deals. All right. Well, we're so so. Let's be clear to the audience. The nineteen point eight was at Morgan Stanley, right in two thousand. Yes. That was like, you know, maybe in your fifth year in the league, first round of the playoffs. But then you left Morgan Stanley, and then it looks like you started winning some championships over here with hundred billion dollar deals. <laughs> but the Nabisco to Philip Morris deal was at Morgan Stanley. Why? What? Why does someone that's at that level like? When you're getting there and you're there, why do you leave? Why do you leave to go to another bank? Was it an opportunity? Was it something that you wanted to do in your career? Because at that point, the money is so stupid anyway, right? So listen, at Morgan Stanley, I, when I went to Morgan Stanley, you know, I, I, in, the, in the hierarchy, I was just a managing director. And then you got to put enough points on the board, your language, you got to have enough triple doubles that you get promoted to the co-head of the business. And I was promoted to the co-head of the global mergers and acquisitions business. And that's kind of in the world of, of finance, that's kind of the peak. Unless you get to the point where they recruit you, which is what happened when Citigroup recruited me to come and run the global corporate and investment banking business to which mergers and acquisitions reported. Mm. So you went and got that ultimate senior job at City, And does that feel at that point, like, is there any sense for you because of who you are uh, again? Like, let's just stay with this theme, because I remember being with KD after he won his first championship. We talked about this with some other people we've had on that had sold their companies. Did you even relish in it? Like, do you get to that job and relish in that success or are you still just like head down even at that level, you know, what's next? Because obviously when you got to that level, just the stakes become so much higher. And like you said, then you're starting to do the Time Warner split and deals like that. The answer is um, you can't believe the hype. The hype is not, you know, they asked me how I got here. I tell them there's four things. It's prayer, preparation, performance. And when you grow up in the neighborhood, you got to have a little paranoia. And the paranoia is don't believe the hype. You are only as good as your last yesterday, the day you got to perform. And so if you rest on that hype, you're going to have a relatively short tenured career. And I've never believed the hype ever, ever. I didn't have the opportunity to believe the hype. It's crazy. You say paranoia. That's it's I, I hear that word over and over again from only the elite uh, and the men and women that have achieved like the greatest successes talk about that feeling of paranoia. Like if anything takes me one step back, 
if anyone's on my tail, if anybody's doing the same thing I'm doing, if I'm not working, they're working harder. And I guess that's that, you know, at whatever level you get, especially when you get to these like great heights is you are holding yourself accountable at that point. So you're looking for any kind of motivation. And I think paranoia is a, is a real feeling and also a real motivation. So tell me like, just to talk about that deal for one second, because like, we don't get to look in at stuff like that, even in our version of the boardroom and we're talking sports business, we're not talking hundred billion dollar deals. What does that like? <laughs> what does that even look like? Like, what does yeah. that entail? Like, can you visual, can I get a visual? <laughs> That's what I'm saying. Like what, how do you, when does it start? Like, when does it end? <laughs> Who's in the room? What are you doing? Who's counting it? Oh, all dollar dollar bills, y'all. Dollar bills, y'all. <laughs> so the, the the beginning of this process, you get yeah. a call. You get a call. No, it doesn't happen. It doesn't quite happen. Like they don't just call you up and say, No, Rich, come on down, man. We heard about it. <laughs> no. Gianni, we want you to be here with us. That takes years. <laughs> that takes years, years of being involved. You know, you gotta develop the trust. When you get inside of a boardroom, it's not by accident. You didn't hit the lottery. It is there by design. And either two of you as owners of businesses, if you think about who you want to advise you on how to get to the next step, to get to the next level, you're just going to call somebody who you kind of randomly know or heard about. You got to have somebody. It goes back to your question about a network and developing relationships, right? And so I had been advising on a team uh, advising Time Warner for probably 10 years before they ultimately decided to do this. And there'd been a lot of different iterations on how the company continued to grow and how uh, Time Warner could meet the challenges of an emerging technology, including places like Hulu and Netflix. And what do you do? You're a media company. You wanna be a media company of the future. And so we withstood a lot of overtures and when it finally came down to talks occurring between Time on AT&T, that's when they call you in. That's when they kind of, you know, you have gone through and reviewed all of the strategic plans and helped set the direction or reacted to the direction that they'd outlined. And, you know, you're in the room when it happened, as they say in that play, you got to be in the room when it happened. And so a transaction like that just reflects being in the room, having been in the room multiple times, and having given the advice on which they have relied to get them to a point where they say the best thing for our company is to merge. That comes over time, right? Chief executives, when they're making the decisions of their careers, want to have advising them people in whom they can trust, who have a track record, who have the experience, who have the technical abilities, and who ultimately have the judgment. But that only comes over time and you got to develop that relationship of trust and trust that I talk about is trust that they know that the thing I'm going to do is only in their best interest. I've had clients that I've been advising for, you know, 20 years. And the reason I got into position to advise them and been the only one in the room and advising them for the things they've done over the past 20 years is because one year in a very large transaction they were contemplating, I told them that I didn't think they should do the deal. And they decided that it was the right decision, but no banker had come in and told them they shouldn't do a deal. There are a lot of fees associated with these deals. So somebody coming in saying, don't do something, you develop a relationship there. Mm -hmm. And they will recognize that what you have at the, as the highest priority is what in, what's in their best interest. And the Time Warner management team and the board decided that the advisors that they wanted were advisors who with whom they developed that trust and who they knew was going to give them the advice that was in their best interest. And I assume uh, that's the kind of deal that no matter what level you're at, you're working around the clock. I know your wife, Crystal, an incredible woman, very successful in her own right. And I know you're a family man, but I know mm -hmm. that that kind of job in general can tire and uh, keep you away from the house. Was balance on your drive up a problem at all for you? You know, they asked me that question once I was given a talk. It was supposed to be on work-life balance. And I said, listen, as a black man, it's work and more work and more work. That's the balance. So, I, you know, this is a new convention of work-life balance. I didn't have the option. I didn't, there was no margin for error. I didn't have, a, as I keep saying, I didn't have a plan B. So it was a job, which I didn't know that I was going to call it a career until years later. I didn't know what a career was. 
I knew it was a job and I knew I had to do whatever I could to keep that job. Uh, but there was no, I didn't have the latitude, the luxury to do a work-life balance. So that's some new, new stuff. I had all that time to go do what you're going to do now, do work-life balance. I had all that time. <laughs> I didn't Shit. have the option to do that balancing thing, man. Oh, man, I, I respect that. I feel that. I relate to that. And um, I think it's incredible how honest you are about that, right? Like, because it's the opposite of what so many people tell you and they're lying. Um, and I think to, to hear that from you, I felt that because I can't relate though to, you know, the, the ghosts in the room and the idea that you did have it and feel it and, and, um, and sense it everywhere you went in your life. And, um, a lot hasn't changed, unfortunately. So when you look at wall street now, you're not the only person that looks like you in the room, but there's still a long ways to go. Um, where, where have there been strides like that people wouldn't see? You know, they're, 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 you're right. Um, we've made some successes. There've been some successes. I think where I have taken the most confidence is for those people who currently are in senior roles on wall street. I'd like to have more people who have profit and loss statements because that is the real determinant of the impact you're having and the role that you have. And we need to have more people who have that, who actually have a budget, who actually have a payroll. I had a you know billion dollar plus payroll where you have to go and compensate people based on their performance. So I'd like to have people who have, you know, in a 20 plus billion dollar revenue business to have at least a billion dollars, probably more than that payroll. People need to be in those positions where I've seen some successes, where I take a lot of confidence and pride are people who are the entrepreneurs, the small businesses that have been developed, the, the people in the, in the private equity space or in the money management space, the asset management space. We have a number of people who have been highly successful, who are giving back or contributing because that's an important factor to me. They're making a difference in people's lives, including their own successes. And that's critical. I need to see more of that. I need to see more entrepreneurs, more wealth creation. I'd like to have more people be mentors. I think people picked up the responsibility to do that. Remember my own career, there was, as I said, there's nobody I could call who'd done this before. Um, and what I, what I decided to do was to make certain that I return every phone call and every email. And so as we move forward and develop mentees and see their successes, I take a lot of pride in that. And there are a number of them out there and whom we've tutored and mentored and trained and invested in. You know, some of these companies are now going public at pretty big dollars. You know, there's one who's about to go public somewhere between, you know, four and six billion dollar IPO. And that those are the kinds of successes that we need to celebrate and we need to replicate. We need to replicate those successes. Um, well, then in October, when you ultimately stepped down um, as the vice chairman at City, quote, and this is my first one, quoting Ray McGuire, New York is in a financial crisis that has exploded into a whole bunch of crises, educational, health and criminal justice. And here's the biggest point in the quote. If there's a moment in history where my skill set can help lead, this is it. So when do you remember feeling like this job needed to be held by you and that your skill set was the right person to lead this city. Because I, I do believe that you do have the right skill set to lead it. And I felt that way from the first time I heard you speak. But what was it that you felt and what was ultimately the, the motivation or the thing that pushed it over the edge? You know, I, I had been feeling for a while, uh, John and Rich, that we needed a change. And before I left City, I wrote a forward to what is now probably the definitive study on the 400 years, at least the past 20 years of systemic inequities in healthcare, in education, in the economy, and in the criminal justice system. And the impact on the US economy was, by estimates, uh, $16 trillion. And it went through and, and it identified uh, with, with great analysis done by a, a black economist by the name of Daniel Peterson, the impact, and also said that if we began to address it, that would be $5 trillion added to the U.S. economy. 
I looked at that and I looked at long before that, I looked at the things that were taking place in this city, the things that were taking place in education, things that were taking place in business, corporate America, Wall Street, things that were taking place in the healthcare deserts and all the things that were taking place in the criminal justice system. And I, and you know, I can increasingly talk to people in the communities, in the business community and the communities in the neighborhoods, and they're looking for something different. And I began to talk to Crystal about this and close friends about this. And we decided that there was an opportunity for me, as I've outlined here, to make that difference. So on October the 15th, I called my mother, my 95-year-old mother, and told her I quit my job. You can only imagine how that went down. Boy, you have lost your mind, she said. <laughs> she said she said, I thought you had a good job. I thought you had a good paying job. What have <laughs> what has gotten into you? So I explained to her where the city was and you know where I was in the city and the city that I love, which is where I met Kristen, we're raising our three kids. And that if there's a time for me to make a difference and become a servant, even more of a servant, then now is that time. And of course she prayed for me as she continues to pray for me. And so we're out here. It's the right thing to do. I have no reservations. The more I'm out talking to people, the more it's the right thing to do because people need new leadership. They don't need headlines. You know, all these people coming in promising stuff that they've never been able to deliver. I ain't a politician. Okay. I ain't in nobody's pocket. Yep. So that's what's up. Facts. And to your point, like, I feel like at one point people wanted people in business in positions of power because they felt that the government should be run as a business. And I'm not of that belief because right? you're dealing with real people. You know, you can't just lay people off in New York City. That's not how it works. And so hearing your background at Harvard, how you gave up basketball to live a more full social experience, build on your network, I can tell you're a real people person. And so because of that, you have my vote because I know you care about the actual people. Thank you. Back. 100%. That's what I care about. This is all about the people, Gianni. This is all about the people who don't have. Guys, just look at some of these statistics. If I take if I take third through eighth grade, third through eighth grade, New York City black and brown kids, 70% are below proficient. 70%. If I line up just randomly, fourth grade, 10 black and brown kids, you know how many of them can read? Two, where is the outrage? Who's saying anything about this? I'm just looking at this. I got six, I got a million kids in the, in the million one kids, six or 700,000 of them, black or brown, 70% below proficient. Ain't no outrage. We've just, I mean, that the new normal that we're dealing with? Is that what we've allowed ourselves to, 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 to descend into? the depths of a crisis about which nobody said anything? Who's outraged about this? You have not heard anything about this in any press release, in any story, any time over when, other than now talking about the big digital divide, which is clear, because you got a million and a half of New Yorkers ain't got access to broadband. No broadband, so listen, check this out. I got no summer job, I got no summer recreation, I got uh, no rims, I got no nets on the backboard, so the court's down. I got no broadband. I got no tablet. And I got no I got no laptop. And you know what? It is easier for me to get an illegal gun than it is for me to get a legal tablet. So you tell me how the world is working for you. How's that working for you now, New York? You know, Gianni, you made a really great point, and it's in, it's interesting because the unfortunate part about everything, politics, sports now, is that the narrative and media and a storyline, it is the way of the world, can take hold and be part of a truth that's not ultimately true, right? So the old adage is that, uh, like you said, we want we don't want government run like a business. Okay, true. However, we actually don't want the politicians who've been running government to run government the way they've been running it. And the idea about looking at New York City like a business 
if you look at it from the standpoint of this is a business in debt, this is a business in crisis, and 100%, you want somebody that's for the people, right? But also, I want somebody that's looked at crisis their whole life and known how to get through it. I want somebody that's looked at layers of crisis, teams of crisis, and known how to strategize and delegate. And I think that I'm reading things about you, and it's like, here's this big, bad banker that wants to run the city, right? I'm saying this, not you. And I'm like, no, this is someone that gave up that to run the city, right? Who gave up not having to deal with this to give to run the city. You could have just impacted from the private sector. You could have continued to donate. You could have done everything you want to do in the summer for these kids with your own wealth if you wanted. But you gave it up to jump into a crisis. And the fact that you have an experienced resume of getting through your own crisis to get where you are and then dealing with crisis at every level and giving back, which you don't push enough what you and your family have done to give back throughout the city, around the world. And now you want to take on this job. And I think that the idea of running a city like a business is okay if it's going to get this city back. And there's multitudes of verticals of this business of New York City. And again, I'm saying this, not Ray McGuire. What is the two, what are the two or three most pressing needs that people don't know, right? That things that we have to get dealt with in the city right now, because it's again, a lack of education. And when people don't have an education on what's going on, they want to read the New York Post and say, well, Ray McGuire is the business guy when they don't want to read, right? So let's talk a little bit about the truth which is what's going on in the city right now and what you're going to do because you're going to fix it. And I believe in that. So let's get a little bit of the state of New York City right now. So the first thing is the economy. We got a we got a budget deficit that uh, we'll get some help from the federal government and the American Cares Act. But we got a crisis here and people don't quite understand that. Just look behind you and look at the number of stores that are boarding up. I got boarded up stores. I got small businesses that are that take care of 50% of the employees in New York were shut down. Economy, and let me tell you something, we ain't gonna have no social justice without economic justice. If people don't have jobs, if they can't put, put, put food on the table, then this thing is bad and gonna get worse. No job, no food on the table, can't afford the rent. That, that social justice we talking about ain't gonna work. We gotta have economic justice first. Then we got to have safety and security. People need to feel that it's okay to walk the streets. And then we got to fix the educational system. Because if we don't fix the educational system, we're going to have more people who do not know how to participate. They can't get a job. You don't have a job, you know what happens. You can't get a job. Then we got the emotional stress that's going to come in. You got the mental illness that's going to, that's going to, you're going to get mental illness. You're going to have drug abuse. You're going to have a whole group of the formerly incarcerated who because they have gotten that that stamp going to make it difficult for them to get a job so what is the societal cost that we will have to pay that we are paying to get ourselves out of the rut that we created those are the issues so it's going to be jobs the economy number one number two it's going to be people feeling they can walk the streets and black people especially feeling they can walk the streets. So we got to deal with that. And you got to deal with the education system. And if I were to take two, I mean, it's tough to choose between all three of those crises. And I didn't say anything about the people who, who have been disproportionately impacted by COVID who are miles away from primary care. I live in, we live in healthcare deserts, deserts. We live in food deserts. You can walk outside and get every kind of transportation you want. You go to many of these outer boroughs, they can't, you can get, can't get a bus, let alone a train. You know, I hear, I hear, um, comparison. I was a teenager in the late eighties and in the nineties. Um, so I remember New York from that standpoint, but I hear a lot of people comparing New York right now to the seventies and then talk about the subsequent decades and try to find a pattern from somebody that lived it, literally lived it. Um, in the middle of Wall Street, and also as a New Yorker, do you see the parallel, or is it worse right now? Uh, it's actually worse. Why is it worse? Because the education system's broken. You can't have you don't. What's the graduation rate? Twenty five percent. One out of four graduate. 
70% of your pipeline of children, 70% below proficient, that's 67%, 65 plus percent of New Yorkers below proficient? Between third grade and eighth grade. I mean, think about that. You're 14 and you're below proficient. What do you what do you think the world holds for you? Where's the remediation? Who's going where who going you waiting for Superman? How they gonna work for you? Just tell me how that I mean, just explain, just walk me through this. That's mm -hmm. our reality. Just give me a sense of where's the cavalry? I ain't seen the cavalry. Matter of fact, this is what I want you to do. I want you to get the highest power binoculars that you have access to. And I know you probably got access to NASA and all the rest. And I want you to go to the highest point you can get to. And I want you to look over the horizon. I want you to look behind you. And I want you to see a mirage because that's all it's going to be. And that's the only thing that's going to get you remotely close to what you think's back there. Ain't no cavalry. They ain't coming. So you've done the you've done the digging and it's chaos. Is it safe to say that the city's in, in chaos? Yeah, you call it chaos. I call it a crisis. Crisis. That's right. It's, let's put it this way. Let's try. It's a chaotic crisis. That's what it is. And did it start like obviously there's been a, a multitude of factors, uh, some societal, some out of our control, and some have been because of the people in power. Do you think that it is something that the people in power across all sectors, right? We only see de Blasio and then people knock de Blasio. But I always talk about organizations in the NBA and people that are, are an owner of a team. And I went to the Bay and I saw the Warriors. And it wasn't just they have a great head coach, they have great ownership. The people in positions across the board are stars. The people that are running ticket sales, community outreach. So people hate de Blasio. But are our heads of departments in need of a change across the board in the city? Are there flaws across the board? There are flaws across the board. You have just cited an organization that meets you in the parking lot and takes you to your seat and gives you an experience which you can remember. And since you've been across the league, you know where that doesn't exist. And you know the frustrations that you experience and you compare it to what, you've, what you compare it when, with the best. The answer is yes. It is across the board and unless we, it is systemic. And unless we begin to change, it ain't gonna change. It'll be incremental. And chaotic crises require big, bold moves that have some opportunity of succeeding. Right now, we ain't trying anything. All that we're doing now is doing the same old. Mm -hmm. And you know the definition of insanity, doing the same thing, expecting for a different result. It ain't going to happen. You know what the problem is, though? During the presidential election, when I and so many people were stomping their feet telling people to vote, because we needed to get the outcome we got. I decided to Google mayoral election results. Um, and I realized that so little people vote for mayor. It like was crazy how few yeah. people go out, yeah. right? And then yeah. the people that vote are probably the same people who are gonna say the same things that I'm reading they say. Whereas I know that if more people are aware of the kind of man you are. I know that I have an incredible network. Gianni has an incredible network. And I know how much our network loves New York City. But you know what? Never in my life have I heard people talking about the mayoral race or who they're voting for. They just wait to see who the mayor is and then knock him. I feel like the problem is, is we see what happens when there's chaos now on a global level. And none of us want it. And the narrative needs to get out a bit more right now about the fact that New York City is in a crisis. It's not just going to bounce back because the sun, the sun is coming back. This, people are like, yo, it's summertime, New York's back. But the truth is, they're not, right? So tell me a little bit about where we're at in this process. And like, am I wrong that not very many people vote for the, the mayoral election? The answer is, you are absolutely correct. Now let's analyze why. Because people don't think that their vote matters. Situation has gotten worse from the people they put in office. So why should I why should I spend my time voting if only thing going to happen is my life ain't changing? It's getting worse. We saw a change in that in the presidential because people recognized that their that that democracy was on the ballot. Their livelihood as they knew it was on the ballot. So that's why we had record turnouts. 
in order for us to have the kind of turnout that's necessary here, people have to know that it matters in their lives. And we have accepted a normal that is at such a low level that when we give people crumbs, they feel full, which is why the narrative is what it is. People don't think that it matters whatever they do, and they point to who they think the perpetrator is, and the perpetrator is helping them point to the perpetrator, and the perpetrator ain't them. No, they did. We keep voting for the same people. The people who vote is exactly what you've said. And unless people, unless people believe that it's going to make a difference in their lives, they're going to sit home because we've accepted a new normal, a new lower standard. In order for us to move forward, we can't. We've accepted the standard. These kids can't read and write. We accepted that. Fact. And Ray, I really appreciate the importance and value you're placing on education because, in my opinion, that's the way inner city kids or kids less fortunate actually receive opportunity. And so... With that being said, how do we actually not rebuild, but organize our standard education system in the city? Like, do we need more support for our teachers? Do we need to reorganize the public schools? Like, what does it look like? So, Gianni, we have to listen. Let me tell you something. It shouldn't be the case. I'm just going to pick this out because it happened in other boroughs, too. How can it be that that children in the Bronx can't get crayons? You can't get crayons in the classroom. We spend twenty-five to twenty-eight thousand dollars per student in this city, and kids in the Bronx can get crayons. So I mean, right about that, right? Where's all that? Where's all that dollars going? So you need to transform this. We need to start earlier. Pre-K is good. You need to start before pre-K, and I want to make certain that what happens here. I want to make certain by the time these kids get to pre-K that they're ready. I want to make those investments. And then I want to make certain, and I want to hold myself accountable for this, that by the end of the third grade, every child in New York City can read by the end of the third grade. Why is that? Because between zero and the end of the third grade, our children are learning to read. After that, they're reading to learn. But just think about those kids who don't learn to read until fifth or sixth grade. Look at how far behind they are. And so we got to start early. And then we got to start giving these kids summer jobs so they get exposed. Right, I had a summer job. I dug ditches. I, you know, I laid tile. I changed bedpans. I DC'd IVs. I built boxes in the basement of fields, dress shop. I was a gopher. I did it all, but I, you know, it was a summer job. So I want to start at the sixth grade, giving our kids exposure to summer jobs, whatever it is they want to do. They can be welders. They can be plumbers, whatever they want to do. And by the time they graduate, they can do one of three things. They can go get a job. They can go to a two-year or four-year college, but they have options. They've, they've created networks. And you know what? They feel good about themselves. There's a little bit of dignity there, right? I got a job. I'm going, you know, I'm going to moan about how early I got to get up to go to this job. And I want to complain to my friends got a job. But when I get paid, I'm going to be pretty happy. I go hang out. I got paid my money. That's, what, that's what's up with this. We got we to gotta start investing in our kids. We're not doing that. No. And you know what? It's like I, we, I interviewed Jimmy Iovine the other day and he talked to me about this academy that him and Dre are opening or a high school that they're that they're opening to complement their program at USC to a, create a system in which kids from underserved communities can become hybrid thinkers, become the next Steve Jobs yep. to be able to get something basically that someone else doesn't have to start to level no chance even level the playing field, but start to just switch the pendulum a little bit and say, you know what? Yeah. We're not going to equal it. We're going to bring programming and activations into these communities that no one else has. So you can think like the next Steve Jobs. Right. You could think like the next Ray McGuire and Jimmy Iovine. I think that's, that's something. Up. That's what's up. That's what we have to do. Do you know anything like that that exists? That's on the, that's on the frontier. We need to have that. We need to meet our children where they are. Yep. We, not, we can't prescribe that the only success you have is whether or not you score well on a test. No, That's I, it. That's it. Well, let's do that, right? Because let's help bring that here. Because we do that with KD. I know you do that on your own with what you do philanthropically. And, I, and honestly, it's something that I think when Jimmy said it, I realized like it is, a, it is a part of what we're doing a bit in PG County. But it's something that New York needs desperately um, because there is no greater young talent, in my opinion, than there is in New York City. And it's true, like we have accepted so much as the norm. My kids 
live in a very nice neighborhood. I'm very fortunate. I, like Ray, worked hard enough where I, but even when I was growing up, didn't matter what neighborhood you lived in, there's homeless people everywhere. And my kids walk by homeless people that, and it's, it's normal, yet we created a vaccine in a year. And I know it's not apples to apples, but you're right. We've, ex we've accepted the norm as so low um, that, that any change right now is going to be a change in the right direction. And it has to start with our with education and our youth. Man, sorry, you guys are just, it's inspiring, man. Because when you think about New York City and where, um, like where we're all so fortunate to, to live and the people that are here, and the way this city is kept. I mean, there's so much flawed. You know what, man? You know, I got to ask you a question. This is a total pivot from the tone a second. But how did New Yorkers get fooled into thinking that Rudy Giuliani was a good mayor? He's such a... I, I just you know, don't understand. It was, man. It was at ball. the time. It was at the time, right? You come in at that time, in the, you know, in a, in a time of a different time of crisis. But he came in and he sold hard. Right? The bump. Sorry, I said it. Um, well, listen, man, I, I, I know that I've already started to help a bit. I know that Gianni also with me has started to help a bit, but I, I want to help more. I think we both do. Um, I think we got to get out the vote. Like I, I never even thought about it like that. People in New York got to vote. Let's educate them on why they got to vote. And we got to get them out to vote, man. I saw some wild number. I told you, I think it was less than a million people, less than yeah, 700,000, right. less than a million people. The man got so we got eight plus eight to nine million New Yorkers. He won by 200,000 votes. That's I mean, I, it, you know, that's my point. People don't think it's going to matter. It will matter. And the problem is going to matter more for the people who are the most marginalized. It's getting worse. So the situation that we see with the homeless is only going to go up. The people who have mental health challenges are only going to go up. The people who are suffering from, from, uh, from drug abuse are only going to go up. The formerly incarcerated numbers only going to go up. Yep. And you know what happens? Then people say, oh, you know what? We got, I, so I loved Ray's idea when it comes to people that are dealing with mental issues, right? Why do we send a police officer out to deal with someone that has mental issues? That just doesn't even make sense. Then someone would combat that by saying, well, we don't have the money. The, the city cut this, they cut that. Who do you want managing the money and the deficit that our city's in and where we have to go, but somebody that has done that at the highest level. I don't understand it, and I think it's because the same people are voting every time, the same conditioned people, and there's the same political box in New York, and we gotta break that a bit now. We gotta break that. I have a last question for you, Ray. Um, there, there's nothing that could take away from the successes that you've had in your life both personally and your family, professionally, philanthropically. You sit on the boards of some of the greatest institutions, the Whitney, the Museum of Harlem. You, you, it could go on for another half hour. Do you worry at all about your legacy if you don't win? No, I don't worry about my legacy if I don't win because this is, you know, I, I do believe that this is a walk of faith, so I'm okay either way. I, I will, the legacy is that I will have done this for the right regions and I attempted to make a difference. I am quite proud of and humbled by the things that I've been able to do, the impact that I've been able to have. On Tuesday, I was in, uh, last Tuesday, a week ago, tomorrow, I was in Washington, D.C. And I was in Washington because I was a pallbearer at the going home service of Vernon Jordan. And I look at his legacy and I look at the lives that he has impacted, including mine and Vernon Jordan and Frank Thomas and Dick Parsons. And I look at their legacies. Will they have legacies of having been in business? Yes. But their legacies are going to be, and all of our legacies are going to be determined by the number of people whom we've, whose lives we've impacted. It won't be because of the deals we've done or the dollars we've made. It'll be the impact we've had on our families and our families live. How well did we take care of our families? How did we love them and how do they love us back? And how many hugs I get from Leo and Cole and Ella and how well, you know, Crystal and I are vibing, which is well all the time and the depth of our love and caring and giving. That's what this legacy is about, right? I mean, when, when you go and they eulogize you, what are you going to say? He did a lot of great deals. He did this and the other the eulogies that will be the ones that get you to the place that you want to get to where you kind of collect your crown of the eulogies of the lives that you've impacted. 
That's what this is all about, especially those who've been given the fortune of having opportunities and making the most of those opportunities. It isn't about giving everybody the same kind of opportunity, independent of their zip code. It isn't about that. It isn't about investing in those people. My word says the least of the, it isn't about trying to do something to change somebody's life, whether it's a community of one or a community of thousands. So my legacy will have been that I tried to make a difference. And in some ways I succeeded, in some ways I may have come up short, but at least I made the effort. At least I made the effort. So, you know, that's how I think about the legacy. Well, I appreciate that answer. I appreciate our time with you. You are beyond impressive, man. I learned from you this this interview, and, and I'm I'm honored to um, to be able to help out, and I'm honored to now call you a friend. And I know, G, this must have been the same kind of impactful this moment for awesome. you, bro. Yep. Man, right? You got my vote. I'm gonna do all I can. Get my whole crew. Hit the streets. Spread the word. <laughs> get the vote going. So Seriously? thank you, thank you, G. Let me just say. Uh, your dad was a friend. Your dad was one of the most brilliant, committed, dedicated, respected, admired people whom I know. Thank you. You have a legacy here. Your dad's legacy is living in you. You do you, which is what your dad wanted you to do, and do you and however you want to do you. But you should know that you have the love and support of me and, of course, Uncle Tracy and others. So you are our future. And Thank just you, go be go be your brilliant self, man. We love you. We care about you. And we embrace you fully. Just go, you know, go soar, man. We got you. Okay, go soar. No doubt. Yes, sir. Okay. Thank you, Ray. Appreciate it. All right, Rich. It. Thank you, guys. Talk to you soon, okay? All right. Okay. <laughs>